Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. And uh, we're beginning a new series this week. But before I get to that, um, a whole bunch of you reached out this week for two different reasons. Um, if, if you don't know, my wife, Sarian and I were in Israel when everything kind of broke a couple weeks ago on Saturday and uh, finally made it home and just so thankful for all of you who reached out and said, how you doing? And we're still a little shell-shocked, but, it, you know, we're, we're kind of re-entering reality here for us. Um, the other question that you asked, though, um, how are we praying for the situation in the Middle East? And I just wanted to kind of answer that for everybody and just invite you to join us in that prayer. And, and I thought this week a little bit about what's the best way to sort of answer that question. And um, I, I guess what I want to do is just tell you a little story that happened on the Saturday when Hamas attacked Israel. We were um, at a hotel in Tel Aviv, and uh, about one o'clock in the afternoon, we got in our rental car and drove out of the city, and it was interesting because we were the only ones on the road. And it's a big city, and about halfway out, I thought, did they lock down and not tell the Americans? It's possible that they did, right? But anyway, uh, we drove around, did a couple things, and then we needed gas before we returned our rental car. And uh, because I'm not paying attention all the time to stuff, um, all the Jewish gas stations were closed because it was Sabbath, the Shabbat, so um, they're not open, and I needed gas, so I, had, I was going to have to pay like $40 million for my tank of gas because the rental companies there do what rental companies here do. So I thought, okay, i got to find a, a gas station owned by Palestinians, and so I went on Apple Maps, and sure enough, there was one that was open, and so we get to the gas station, and um, I go to the pump, and it looks just like our pumps, really nice. I put my credit card in, and it starts beeping and flashing. I don't know what that means, right? And I look at the screen, and it's in Hebrew. Now, I took biblical Hebrew in college, but as it turns out, the Bible, the biblical Hebrew does not contain words for gasoline and credit cards and not working. But that's what it was saying. And so uh, I was sort of standing there thinking, what am I going to do? And this wonderful Palestinian man comes around and on. He says, hey, you know, can I help you? And I said, oh, yeah. I said, I don't speak Hebrew. And it's flashing. I don't know what it means. And he said, oh, our credit card system's down. And I said, okay. And he said, um, do you have cash? And I said, I do have cash. I have American cash. He goes, ooh, we don't take American cash. And I was like, okay. So I'm just, okay. He said, but I can change it for you if you'd like. I said, oh, that's fantastic. So he really you know, changed the money out and then paid him some more back and he helped me pump the gas. And um, there was a moment right at the end of the, the interaction where he, he looked me in the eye and he said, um, please pray for us. And he said, um, what Hamas did this morning is, is awful, inexcusable, terrible. But he said, um, most of us are, you know, Jews and Palestinians are just trying to live at peace and feed our kids. So please just pray for us and, and pray for our leaders. And so that's what we've been doing. Um, you know, it's geopolitically impossible. Um, and yet uh, we, we pray that God would make a way in that land where there doesn't seem to be a way. And so again, I just invite you guys to, to join us in that. Actually, I'd love to pray right now um, with you for that. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we come together um, at a confusing time in the Middle East, and we pray for all of those families right now um, that are scared, they don't know what to do, and they're looking to their leaders. Um, we pray for wisdom for those leaders, and, and ultimately, we, we pray that you make a way um, where there is no way. We know you are at work in the middle of even this mess, and we trust you. But again, we pray that you would just draw near to those people um, in the land in which you chose to tell your story. And so our, our hearts uh, go out to them, and uh, we thank you once again that, that Jesus really is the Prince of Peace.
It is in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Okay, now I have to make a really bad transition. So the best way to do that when they taught me when I was learning to talk is just say, this is a really bad transition. So there you go. Kind of, you're, all, you're not like, that was a terrible transition. It was. But I am super excited today, see, because we get to launch a brand new series called The Essentials. And to get us going, what I want to do is tell you about a conversation that I had recently with a guy that I met well over a decade ago. And what's funny is I was thinking about it. It might even be over two decades ago. Um, it's been a minute, but this is the thing that happens when you're in youth ministry because occasionally you run into somebody that you met as a sixth grader and now they have like a wife and three kids and you're like, dude, you are so old. And you're like, I am so old. But anyway, met this guy years ago when I was serving as a youth pastor. And uh, back then, I got to know him pretty well. Uh, we went on a few mission trips together. Uh, you know, I spent a bunch of Sunday nights at youth group, kind of connecting, and also some summer camps. Uh, but after high school, uh, he moved out of the area for college and then later moved back to Grand Rapids with his wife and three kids. Um, and when we got together for coffee, he said that he had reached out at the request of his wife uh, because according to her, and really him too, he was experiencing something he described to me as a crisis of faith. And when I asked him what he meant by that, he confessed an increasing reluctance not to publicly identify as a Christian, specifically because of some of the beliefs of other Christians. And, and then he said, I guess I guess I'm not even really sure anymore what I have to believe in order to be a Christian. I, he said, I had some clarity leaving high school, but, but just things have changed and things have gotten a lot more complicated. And then he says to me, um, you know, do, am I required to like berate people on social media who don't believe like me? It's a good question, right? And he says, and do I have to believe that God hates people who don't adhere to a particular ethical framework? And, and do I have to vote for a certain political party? And do I have to hold to a particular stance on divisive social issues in order to be a Christian. And I remember you know, sitting there with my like, half-drunk almond milk latte in my hand and thinking, those are great questions. And in fact, the question of what someone has to believe in order to be a Christian would make for a great series of talks, especially in 2023. And, and here's why I say that. Um, even though you may not be aware of it, all over our country, people and especially young people, are leaving the Christian faith in record numbers. And they're leaving for what I believe to be some really unfortunate reasons. In other words, they're bailing on Jesus for reasons that really have nothing to do with Jesus, things that are not essential to the Christian faith. In fact, as I was preparing for this series, um, I read a book, and the book contained an interview with someone who identified as a former Christian. I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing, but yeah, a former Christian who gave the author this explanation as to why she had walked away from faith. She said that in her experience, Christians say good things about how much they love people, but they're actually the biggest haters in the world. They're mean to people who are already mistreated. They're arrogant and pushy with their opinions about how the rest of the world should live. He said, if Christians wonder why people are turning away from the church, it's because Christians are collectively the worst of humanity. And I read that and I went, ouch. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is certainly not universally true, but maybe it's partially true in some streams of Christianity. So I have to admit some of that's fair. But I think her comments also serve to explain why I so wanted to do this series. See, I'm convinced that in our day, 
there are beliefs that have been added to certain streams of Christianity that not only are not essential, but are actually harmful to the forward progress of the movement that Jesus unleashed in our world. And uh, you know, as discouraging as all of that sounds, and it is, um, the somewhat comforting news, at least to me, is that historically speaking, this has happened before. Like in almost every generation going back to the resurrection of Jesus, it really has. And, and here's why. Uh, sociologists believe that in every generation, new ideas arise often due to things like a religious bias or a cultural bias or even a political agenda that gets sort of woven into the fabric of what it means to be a Christian. And whenever that happens, people are taught that they must believe all of these new ideas in order to be a Christian. In other words, they're taught that these new ideas are essential even though they're not. Which, of course, brings me to the question that will drive this entire series. And the question is simply this. What beliefs are essential to the Christian faith? In other words, what ideas must someone affirm in order for them to be a Christian? What is fundamental and what is sort of optional? And I'm convinced that the key to answering that question, and this won't surprise you if you spend any time around here, um, the answer to that question is Jesus. Like, if you hold up any new teaching to the teachings of Jesus, when you explore what Jesus prioritized and what he didn't prioritize, then it's pretty easy to spot what's essential and what's not. In fact, when you hold up any new teaching to a teaching of Jesus, you might even find that sometimes not only is a new teaching not essential, it's actually harmful. Like it takes things away from what Jesus intended for us and for the world. All that to say many, many people in our world today have reached a moment when they've chosen to walk away from the Christian faith because of something that's not essential to the Christian faith. And I think, I think that's an absolute tragedy because in their passion to separate themselves from something that they see as unhealthy and even harmful, they're inadvertently separating themselves from something that's incredibly valuable and significant and important. Or, or maybe better said, they separate themselves from someone who's incredibly valuable and significant and important. They're, they take steps away from Jesus. And so that said, what I want to do in this series is to sort of take us back to the earliest days of Christianity in order to rediscover what was and therefore what still is essential. And um, what I want to do today is introduce you to what I believe to be the first and earliest essential of the Christian faith. And, and so to get us going in that direction, I uh, have a bit of a mental exercise for you. I want you to imagine that we have all somehow crammed into a time-traveling DeLorean. Yes, friends, Back to the Future references are happening right now. This is a good day at Keystone. Uh, we all crammed into a time-traveling DeLorean, and we've journeyed back to the city of Jerusalem in the year 30 AD. So here's an artist's rendering of what the city would have looked like at that time. Um, and it's critical for us to understand that at that point in history, there was no church. There were no pastors. There was no Christian theology. There was no New Testament. The main religious forces at play in Israel were the Jewish temple, which of course you can see prominently in this rendering, and the Jewish priesthood who ran the Jewish temple, and the documents that we call the Old Testament. 
So just imagine with me that upon our arrival, we begin to walk the city streets and we almost immediately begin to overhear conversations about an unusual, wonder-working rabbi from Israel's north, a town called Nazareth. His name's Jesus, and um, he was drawing enormous crowds everywhere that he went. And by all accounts, the stories that he told were, were sometimes helpful and more often confusing, but, but really more than anything, people were interested because he seemed to be confronting the corruption of the Jewish religious establishment. And so not surprisingly, some people, especially those that were in the Jewish religious establishment, hated him for that. They saw him as a threat, but other people, those outside the religious establishment, loved him for that because they had been hurt by the corruption and Jesus was bringing them a message of hope that God was still at work in their world, that he hadn't forgotten about them, and that he had seen the, the oppression they were enduring at the hands of the religious leaders and also the Romans who occupied their land, and, and that God had heard their cries and he was concerned about their suffering and that he was moving in a new way to make things right. And anyway, after listening to all these conversations, we hear a rumor that uh, Jesus and his disciples we're heading to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so fortunately for us, our DeLorean still had enough fuel, because you've got to have enough fuel, right, to transport us to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that we encounter Jesus and his disciples firsthand. And we get to listen in on a conversation that was taking place between them. Um, and just a, just a special request, if you've spent any time in church, then you're very likely aware of the details of the conversation that Jesus and his disciples had that day. But if you are, for the next few minutes, I want to invite you to listen with some fresh ears and don't jump to the end because I'm telling you in this little bit of dialogue, I'm convinced that Jesus articulated the first and most important essential of the Christian faith. Okay, so here's how it went down. One of Jesus' first disciples, a man named Matthew, who was there that day, wrote in his account of Jesus' life, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And it's super easy for us to miss, but while asking this question, Jesus appropriated a pretty incredible title for himself. It was a title that was originally revealed in an Old Testament document, and it was a connection that his first disciples would not have missed. See, his children growing up in the synagogues on that northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, they would have learned that around 600 years before the time of Jesus, a prophet by the name of Daniel had written of this son of man. He wrote the following. He said, in my vision, and this again is Daniel, 600 years before the time of Jesus, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then he tells us he approached the ancient of days, speaking of God, and was led into his presence. And then check this out. He, this son of man, or one like a son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. He says, all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. And then this, he said, his dominion, his kingdom is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So don't miss this. In his vision, Daniel describes someone he said was like a son of man to whom God gave authority and glory and power and who was subsequently worshiped by all nations and peoples on earth. That said, in a move that had to be either incredibly arrogant or unbelievably true, 
Jesus took the title of Son of Man for himself while asking his first followers who people thought that he was. Like, guys, what's the word on the street about who I am? And I'm telling you, if you think about it, that really is the single most important question that any of us can answer. And we'd ask it this way. We'd simply say, you know, who is Jesus? If you're seeking to, you know, how do you, how do you get around the Christian faith? Or how do you even start? You, you, you've got to go after this question. This is the most significant question of all when it comes to Christianity because the proper answer to this question changes everything. Anyway, so Jesus asked his disciples, who do other people think that I am? And they answered, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And this, this is actually a really helpful, uh, helpful response because it gives us a sense of what people thought about Jesus. I mean, these, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah are some of Israel's greatest prophets. So the people's perception of Jesus at the time was that he was a great prophet. I mean, John the Baptist, I mean, he was a popular teacher uh, who had recently been beheaded by Israel's King Herod. And uh, Elijah was the sort of ultimate Old Testament prophet. He was a picture of what a passionate commitment to God Look like. And then Jeremiah, uh, he was a prophet who had been persecuted by Jewish religious leaders who didn't appreciate his relentless challenges for them to turn from their sin and corruption. And so apparently at the time Jesus asked this question, people on the street were regarding him at least as highly as Israel's most respected prophets. And that explains why at this point in his life, again, everywhere Jesus went, he was met by crowds who were desperate to hear him teach and to watch him heal. People recognized him as a powerful voice who brought challenge and light and hope wherever he went. And as, inter now, as interesting as, as this is, and it, it's an interesting thing to think about, Jesus actually had a further question for his disciples that day. Because in the next verse, Matthew says, he asked them, who do you say that I am? In other words, guys, no one has had the proximity to me that you've had. And so with all you've seen, with all you've heard, with all you've experienced, after all of the conversations and interactions and observations, what have you concluded? Like, who am I? And in response, Peter, who was likely the oldest and definitely the most impulsive disciple, responded without hesitation. He looked at Jesus and he said, who are you? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, Jesus, you're the one that God promised to send generations ago in order to lead your people to freedom. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And by the way, that's what the word Christ means. Christ and Messiah are, are the same word in Greek and Hebrew, and then both of them mean anointed one. And in the Jewish tradition, a prophet or a priest would often pour olive oil on a designated individual's head in order to anoint them king. And, and so in response, Peter essentially said, Jesus, I believe that you are the son of man about whom Daniel wrote. You're God's final king. And I believe that God has anointed you to be the king of the entire human race forever. That's who you are. And so before we go any farther, I really need to ask you to think about something, and I want to invite you to think about this, whether or not 
you consider yourself to be a Christian? It's a simple and yet profound question. And it goes like this, simply this. What if Peter was right? In other words, what if somehow Jesus really was God's son? And and what if he really is the final and forever king of the human race? What if that's true? I mean, if it is, you have to admit, then that changes everything. In fact, if that's true, then we really need to lean in and listen to everything that Jesus said because he's Lord and he's king. I mean, he's everything. And I'm telling you, that day, standing in the sunshine, Peter was convinced that he was. He looked at Jesus and he said, after all I've seen, after all I've experienced, after all I've heard, I know who you are. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one who our people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. You are God's final and forever king. And and, and not surprisingly, uh, Jesus' response to Peter's uh, answer was brilliant. And I say that because it's Jesus and everything he says is brilliant. So check out what Jesus says next. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Peter's also called Simon. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're right about who I am. Um, but just so we're clear, you're not bright enough to have figured that out on your own. Sorry. So like God must have tipped you off. But yes, I am God's final and forever king. I am God's unique son. I am the one who is like a son of man. And he said, moreover, and check out what he says next. I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And this is actually one of the most significant verses in the history of the church. And I suspect a few of you already know this, but Catholics and Protestants have a very different theories about what Jesus meant here. Uh, Catholic scholars argue that because Peter's name in Greek is Petros, which literally translates into English as Rocky, as in yo, Adrian. That was really bad. Anyway, you know what I mean. Imagine I sounded like Sylvester Stallone and not Kermit the Frog and you get what I'm going. Okay, anyway. So when Jesus said, they believe that when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, he was talking about Peter himself. In other words, the Catholics believe that in this moment, Jesus, Jesus designated Peter as the first pope and that every pope after has sat on the throne of St. Peter. That's what Catholic scholars believe. Protestant scholars, on the other hand, argue that the rock on which Jesus promises to build his church is the profession that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, as Peter would soon learn, the Savior of the world. Protestant scholars believe that the church will gather around this belief and carry the message of God's astonishing grace and mercy and love that was demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross to the world. But but whoever's right, I'm telling you, in that moment, standing in the sunshine on a hill overlooking the city of Caesarea Philippi, all of Jesus' first followers believed that he was God's final and forever king. They would have thought, who else could he be? He has the power of God in his hands. And they also believed, like wholeheartedly, They believed that until the day that Jesus died on the cross. And if you said, well, why did they stop believing when Jesus died on the cross? I would say because they believed that the Messiah would have an everlasting kingdom, which meant he would always win. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, they concluded that in spite of all they had heard and seen and observed, he simply couldn't be the Messiah. And so if you say, well, what did they do? I mean, they had thrown everything behind Jesus. And yeah, they ran and they hid. They hid somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, somewhere they felt like they could be secure, and they locked themselves in a room and tried to figure out what to do. They all unbelieved in Jesus when he died on the cross. And they unbelieved for a few days until something happened that changed everything and they came face to face with the unbelievable yet undeniable reality that Jesus was alive again. And in that moment, they understood that in spite of the fact that he appeared to have lost when he gave up his life on the cross, Jesus had in fact won a far greater victory than they could ever imagine. And those guys went on to take that news to the world. Okay, so um, as I was working on this talk, something kept coming up, and I felt like I just gotta, I just gotta share this is a little bit of an aside, but I think that Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is pretty much the only thing that the church, Big C, has agreed on consistently since the beginning. Seriously. If you look at church history, and I did, you don't have to, but you can if you want to, right? Early Christians didn't agree on very much. They didn't agree on the way to baptize people. They didn't agree how to practice communion or even what to sing or how long to sing during their worship services. Pretty much the only thing that Christians have ever globally affirmed is the identity of Jesus as God's final and forever king. And and that's why I would argue that that's the first essential of the Christian faith. that, That it's actually the thing around which everything else is organized and prioritized. And on a personal note, that's why I wake up almost every single morning and either read something that Jesus said or read something that people who knew Jesus said about him. And it's like, I've been doing this since like I was in middle school. You say, well, haven't you kind of heard it all? Like, wouldn't you want to look somewhere else? And I would just simply respond, well, where else would I go? Like, what else is there? What's more important than to hear from God's final king? And so the first essential that I want to identify for us, and over the, cor- the series, we're actually going to make an actual list. You, like, your type ones are going to love this, right? And the, it's simply this. Jesus is God's son and our king. And this is where Christianity begins. I mean, think about it. If that's who Jesus is, then what, what can we do but to worship him and submit to him? Like, who are we to question him? If God sent his son into this world because he loves this world, and if God sent his son into this world to pay a debt that we could not pay, then as a result, we can know that God loves us, and we can know that God is for us, and we can know that Jesus really is God's final king. And when we realize that, then what else can we do but to bow down and worship him and surrender to him? I'm telling you, like everything else we're going to go about in this series, and I cannot wait, everything else we're going to talk about flows from here. And so I guess you could even say, like, if you get this right, then pretty much everything else just falls into place. 
Because Jesus is God's son and our king. And so uh, we're going to pick it up there next week. Uh, But for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time in prayer. And and once again this week, if you've come and maybe this is your first time, maybe you've been coming for years, but you just need someone to talk to, maybe offer a prayer, um, we would love to meet you under the screen to the left. We have some friends that will be there um, just as soon as I dismiss this. But uh, let let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good. And we thank you that you sent your son to be a king like no other king and to offer us a chance to be a part of a kingdom that is like no other kingdom because no other king lays down his life for his subjects. No other king washes feet. And so uh, we know we're not worthy and we know that somehow we are worthy because of your love for us and the blood of Jesus. And so we just say thank you. I pray that as individuals and as a community, we would continue to hold up Jesus in our world as a place of hope and truth and light and life. And so this morning we thank you for a place to gather, to learn, to be challenged, and to just realign our heart with your heart. It is in the name of Jesus, the name above all names that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two of The Essentials.